Hey, what you're about to listen to is the podcast version of what was a live radio segment on KPFA. Consequently, when you hear us give out a call-in number, you don't want to call it. If you're listening to this as a podcast, it is already too late, and nobody on the other end of that phone number is going to have any useful answers for you. You can, however, send in a question for our next episode by shooting an email to upfront at kpfa.org. You can also tune in for the next edition live and ask your question over the phone then. We normally air Monday mornings on KPFA just after 7.30 news headlines. All right, let's go to this week's Corona Calls. In an upfront this hour, of course, we're going to speak with Dr. John Schwarzberg. Uh, John is clinical professor emeritus of infectious diseases at University of California School of Public Health. Dr. Schwarzberg, uh, welcome back. Good morning. Thank you. Good morning. Um, I had several things on my agenda that are not necessarily totally COVID-related, but they are uh, absolutely uh, connected. And uh, one is uh, immunization and vaccination. Um, and I know that given that you are focused on infectious diseases, uh, vaccination is uh, obviously the most uh, powerful uh, effort you can come up with to combat them. And uh, currently, we have a candidate for president of the United States, Robert F. Kennedy Jr., who seems to believe that vaccination is somehow not only uh, not effective, uh, but actually dangerous. And he uh, clearly has a constituency. So tell us more about, uh, he denies being an anti-vaxxer. And so uh, to just be clear, he says he's not an anti-vaxxer. But then he comes out with things that says, well, he thinks there might be a connection between uh, childhood vaccinations and autism. So Tell us more about uh, your efforts to uh, educate the public on this question. Sure. In part based upon um, Kennedy's stance, and he really is very much opposed to vaccination, um, I started teaching a seminar about six or eight years ago at UC Berkeley on vaccine hesitancy and vaccine resistance uh, to try and explore why people um, are reluctant to get protected from the arguably, as you said, some of the most powerful tools to prevent illness and death um, that humans have ever created. And part of the class is devoted to um, Kennedy. We have actually one full two-hour session where we talk about Kennedy and several other anti-vax people here in the United States. It's a, it's a strange phenomenon, but it's not a new phenomenon. Um, not long after smallpox, the smallpox vaccine was created, and this is several hundred years ago, the, um, there was opposition to protecting humans with the smallpox vaccine, and smallpox was one of the most horrific diseases that humans ex had experienced over the millennia. So this is not a new phenomenon. It raises its ugly head up periodically, and it certainly has during the COVID pandemic, and that's been facilitated by um, the ability of humans to communicate so much better now with the Internet. 
More specifically about Kennedy, um, his opposition to vaccine has actually cost lives. Um, there's um, one part of the world in the South Pacific. Um, he convinced the president of that com uh, country to really stop promoting vaccines. People got scared of them and stopped getting protection, and there were lots of deaths from measles. Uh, now they've start they've resumed vaccination. So I find it. Uh, very disturbing that someone with the name Kennedy, which has such a cachet here in the in the United States because of his family, um, has has done this. Um, I'll end by just saying that um, he, he's being, in my opinion, irresponsible and dangerous. Well, the uh, childhood vaccines that are now in California, I believe, required uh, before you can enter kindergarten. Uh, cover well the MMR vaccine is uh, probably the the first vaccine that an infant would get for measles mumps and rubella uh, and I did a little work uh, looking into this and uh, the uh, incidence of uh, people refusing MMR vaccine for an infant uh, has not really gone up s significantly uh, and c currently it's about 91 percent of those infants in the U.S. are getting the MMR uh, vaccines. Uh, but uh, again, there is resistance, right? Well, the MMR vaccine, mumps, measles, and rubella is a, a very effective vaccine. And it's important for people to know, and I'm sure most people do, that there's no such thing as a free lunch, that there are complications to vaccines. Fortunately, they're extremely rare. Um, MMNR um, does not cause autism. That's been proven over and over again with good science. Um, still, that rumor persists in part because of Kennedy and, and others. Um, you mentioned 91% for Californians and, and school-aged children. That sounds great, uh, and it is sufficient for mumps and rubella, German measles, but it's not sufficient for measles. Measles is the most contagious viral respiratory disease that we know of. It's even more contagious than COVID, and that's pretty hard to believe. Even Omicron, the Omicron version of COVID. So we need a protection level at around 95% of the population to make sure that people aren't getting measles. And that's why we periodically see measles cases when they're often introduced from abroad um, to the American public because there's enough people around not very many, but there are enough people around to allow it to persist and cause disease, and tragically, sometimes deaths. For those of us, uh, John, I'm assuming you are as old as I, and uh, we were around uh, way back when, uh, when uh, measles was just an ordinary childhood disease, and uh, I got it. I got measles. I survived. Uh, people act like no big deal, but we're wrong, right? We are, and it's not just an ordinary childhood disease. That was a way of psychologically coping with it. But um, measles in the United States around uh, the turn of the 19th to 20th century had a mortality rate uh, that was well over 1% and probably closer to 5%. In the developing world today, in parts of the developing world where people 
kids aren't immunized, we see mortality rates up to about 10%. And it's not just mortality rates, but measles causes one of its complications that's much more frequent is encephalitis or an inflammation of the brain. And that can lead to all sorts of permanent neurological problems. Measles is not a benign disease. Um, we, we called it that just because we didn't have any tools to deal with it. And rubella, uh, I'm thinking uh, we called it German measles, and it was particularly problematic for pregnant women, uh, resulting in uh, 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 pregnancies that uh, had pretty negative results. Uh, tell us more. Sure. Rubella, German measles are the three-day measles. Ironically, uh, it caused so many serious problems because it was such a benign disease in most people. Um, the typical rubella case, the, the child would have a, a rash, maybe a little bit of fever. Uh, they called it the three-day measles is because it was gone in three days, so it wasn't a big deal, and nobody paid attention to it until many decades ago now, and I think it was in the 50s. Um, the association was made between getting rubella during pregnancy and either fetal death or severe damage to the fetus. It was the most common cause of congenital heart disease. It was a very common cause of deafness. And it was the most common cause of blindness in these children that were born to the world. So it um, was a terrible disease for one host, and that was the fetus. But it was so benign that nobody paid attention to it. And, of course, polio. Uh, and, uh, again, you and I remember before uh, the polio vaccine uh, and uh, where I lived, uh, the, each summer there would be a polio epidemic, it seemed, a summer of 53, summer of 54. Uh, we had to stay in our own yard. We had to the, all the swimming pools were closed down. Uh, we, we couldn't play with our friends on the block. It was, uh, it, it was a, a scourge, really. Uh, and now people have apparently forgotten that polio is really a horrible disease. Yeah, boy, I remember that too. I grew up in Oakland, and uh, there was no swimming in public pools in Oakland uh, during those those years in the early 50s and mid-50s until the vaccines became available. I had uh, one of my nearest family members, a, a first cousin who from San Diego who got polio at age six and never moved his arms again. Uh, and he had to spend about a year on it with an iron lung before he could breathe on his own. It was, you're right, it was a horrible disease. It is a horrible disease. And it breaks my heart to see this disease persisting in parts of the world. And still, even here in the United States, we had a case of polio here in the U.S. in New York last year and somebody who wasn't vaccinated. So I, I also remember um, the serpentine lines stand, uh, that I was with my parents standing in line in front of the junior high school in Oakland to get the sugar cubes with the Sabin vaccine, the oral uh, polio vaccine. Uh, it was such a gift to us. Well, before that was the sock vaccine, which was a shot. So there were two different vaccines, uh, both of which worked. And uh, and so, of course, people forget about it once, once uh, the pro problem solved. You know, you don't even think about it. 
Uh, I do want to let our listeners in on this conversation. If you would like to ask a question of Dr. John Schwartzberg, uh, you can give us a call at 1-800-958-9008, 1-800-958-9008 for your question with Dr. Schwartzberg. Uh, something else that happened, uh, uh, a little bit of a surprise, uh, the decision by Rochelle Walensky, who has been leading the uh, uh, Center for Disease Control uh, since the Biden administration took office uh, announced her resignation, the end, uh, which uh, ended the end of, of June. Uh, again, this took people by surprise. I'm not sure uh, what exactly uh, uh, her motivation was. I, I imagine uh, she got tired <laughs> of all the work. Tell us more. I think so. I think you're probably right. There's uh, there's uh, no evidence that uh, there was any reason for her to leave. That is, she was forced out, nor is there any evidence um, that she was dissatisfied with the job. It, as I think most of the listeners can imagine, uh, taking over the CDC at any time would be a very big job with tremendously demanding. Taking over the CDC in the midst of the worst pandemic we've seen in, in 100 years uh, – is is really a, a formidable undertaking, and I'm sure she was just exhausted. Um, interviews with her, um, I think, uh, listening to what she, the changes that happened during under her aegis, I think uh, she did a very impressive job. She certainly stumbled sometimes, like I think anybody would, but I think all in all, she did a very good job. The good news is that she's turning over the CDC. She's not turning over, but the CDC is being... Um, turned over to the new director who's from North Carolina, a physician who is extremely competent and extremely experienced, not just in medicine and public health, but also very experienced in the workings of the government. And I think the CDC can use somebody like her. So I think uh, uh, all, all things point to a, a very good new director. Well, that's good news. Um, I think we should take the calls. I, I've sort of monopolized uh, your your time, John. So uh, let's go to our first caller. Up first is, I think it's going to be Joan in Walnut Creek. Uh, Joan in Walnut Creek, you're on the air. Oh, hi. Thank you for this show, which is always really interesting. I, I got my last vaccination of December 23rd, 2022. They, um, I substitute teach, and I want to be protected in the fall, and I don't want to be told I can't get the monovalent when it comes out because of having had a more recent vaccination. And Sutter has written, sent me an email recently that I should be getting COVID vaccination this summer. And I'd like your opinion about that. My, my inclination is, since the... Um, prevalence tends to be lower during the summer to wait and get the monovalent. And they said that they, I asked that question and they said they have no information yet as to uh, what the rules will be on getting a monovalent if you've just had a COVID vaccination in July. Okay, John, what's, what's the story? Well, Joan's asking a really important question. And unfortunately, I don't have an answer because what she heard from Sutter is correct. And that is, uh, the CDC has not come out yet and really defined who will be candidates for the monovalent vaccine. That said, I think it's very, very likely that anybody who is a candidate for the vaccine, which is likely going to be 
clearly people 18 and over, regardless of their health status, will be candidates for the vaccine, but we just haven't heard from the CDC yet. Um, given that you're a substitute teacher, um, I think you're right. You want to have maximum protection because um, teachers are a, a higher at risk group of getting infected. Uh, but I think the vaccine will likely be available to you. I think if it's not the group that it will be clearly available to the first group, the largest group would be people 65 and over. And the next group that would clearly be available would be to would be people with underlying conditions at any age that would have a higher risk of a bad outcome. Um, so if you're under 65, Joan, um, I still think it's very likely that the, can the vaccine will be available. It may be uh, strongly recommended for older people and people with underlying conditions, but I suspect it's going to be available for everybody. Uh, the fact that you got your vaccine in Dece on December 23rd, your last booster, um, that's not going to preclude you getting anything in the fall. Um, I got my another booster after my October booster last year in uh, April, and I'm certainly going to be a candidate uh, for the uh, monovalent vaccine this fall as well. Let's go to our next caller. Up next is, uh, up next is, uh, who, Anissa in Oakland. Anissa, you're on the air. Good morning. Um, I, too, am an educator working in uh, Oakland schools. I wanted to ask um, Dr. Schwartzberg about the chicken pox vaccine because uh, I just noticed there seems to be a lot of resistance among um, parents about chicken pox. I wanted to ask him about that vaccine. Sure. Uh, it's, it's called the chickenpox vaccine or the varicella vaccine. It's been out quite a, quite a number of years now. It has a very safe track record, um, and it works extremely well. It's now given to very young children to prevent them from getting varicella, chickenpox. And I would strongly encourage everybody to get that. Uh, and if you haven't had chickenpox, uh, you certainly should be getting it at really any age. The chickenpox itself um, is a uh, disease not quite as serious as measles, but quite serious nevertheless. It, like measles, causes encephalitis. It can cause, which, cause, which is, again, the inflammation of the brain, and it can cause pneumonia and infect really most any organ. And it does carry a, a significant uh, morbidity rate, and tragically, it does kill some people. So chickenpox is not a benign disease. I remember having it as a kid, and uh, it was miserable, um, but fortunately, like most people, I got through with that. It's highly contagious, so if somebody comes to school with chickenpox and somebody isn't immunized there, they're likely going to get it from that person, so it's a highly contagious infectious disease. For school teachers or people working in schools, um, uh, they should be sure that they have had chickenpox or if they haven't had chickenpox that they should um, be vaccinated. And just one last thing, if you get chickenpox, that virus never leaves your body. And it can wreak its ugly head up decades later causing a disease called shingles, which is a terrible disease in terms of making people just absolutely miserable. And fortunately, there is a vaccine for that. 
um, for uh, people 50 and over that is very effective against preventing you from getting shingles if you had chickenpox earlier. But if you got the vaccine, these young kids today who are getting the vaccine, uh, they're not going to get shingles later in life, which is another benefit of that vaccine. And as I recall, I had it too as a child. Uh, the little pox, the little sores, were they itched like crazy. And uh, after you were done with all of that, they left a scar. And depending upon where the little pox were, uh, they were, could be disfiguring, sort of uh, cosmetically uh, not so great. It could happen. Usually that occurs when the, when the pox virus sores get secondarily infected with bacteria. Then they do scar. Uh, otherwise, the chickenpox virus uh, uh, the sores that they make, usually they heal pretty well. So yes, scarring can be a complication. Uh, what really scarred people was the other terrible pox virus that nobody gets anymore because it's the only infectious disease of humans that's been eradicated, and that is smallpox. But anybody who had smallpox uh, wound up with terrible scars all over their body, including their face. Let's go to our next caller. Up next is... Who's up next? Up next is Bob in San Francisco. Bob, you're on the air. Good morning. Regarding Robert Kennedy Jr., he is supported by a website run by a guy named Joe Mercola, who I have gone to in the past for fairly good advice about alternative approaches to health. When it comes to vaccines, Mercola and Kennedy as well, kind of foam at the mouth really about this topic, which suggests to me it's a very intense feelings around this, uh, akin perhaps to feelings of some people around guns, some people around uh, uh, reproductive rights, which further suggests that the long-term political ramifications of this anti-vax movement you know, might play out for uh, many years to come in, in ways we can't predict. Uh, and just one more point, uh, Kennedy did an interview with uh, David Remnick of The New Yorker magazine that was broadcast over the weekend that's extremely illuminating about the guy. Uh, it's available online at uh, The New Yorker Hour. If you, if you punch in The New Yorker Hour or The New Yorker Radio Hour, you'll find the interview and, you know, whatever comment uh, John would like to make. John? Well, sure. Um, I think you're absolutely right that uh, this anti-vax movement is not going to go away. It's got legs, um, and it's got a lot of money behind it. Uh, Mercola, who you mentioned, um, is a multi, multi, multi-millionaire. He's made a fortune uh, really preying on people's fears about vaccines, but also preying upon people's fears about other problems. And I, I would uh, caution you to take his advice even on supplements um, because I've looked carefully at um, Merkel. He's one of the people we, we study really in our class. And uh, he goes to the bank laughing, uh, making a lot of money off people who are just putting things in their body that we have no idea whether they're safe or efficacious. But the vaccine, um, he's a major anti-vaxxer and he's convinced an awful lot of people not to get vaccinated. And I I agree with you, Bob. I don't think he's the, the anti-vax movement is going to go away. And the big money behind this is coming from where? I mean, who who uh, who makes? I guess this guy with his supplements is making money, but uh, in general, where? Why? Well, that's a big source of uh, of the income for the anti-vax people. Uh, that is, they're selling things to people. 
Um, and they make a fortune off of this. Uh, it would be interesting for your listeners to just uh, uh, pretty easily you can uh, f- find on the Internet uh, Merkla's uh, annual income, which is going to shock people. Well, we're out of time. Uh, Dr. John Schwartzberg, again, thank you very much, and you'll join us again next uh, Monday at 7.30. Uh, looking forward to that. And that was the voice of Philip Maldry, graciously filling in for me while I was off camping. The segment's called Corona Calls. We normally broadcast Mondays just after 7.30 news headlines on KPFA. We put a little bit of extra work into repackaging this live segment as a podcast because it feels like the information's useful to a lot of people. and We ought to make it accessible through as many channels as possible. You can help us get the word out by rating and reviewing it in whatever app you're using to listen. And if you want to pitch in some cash, we wouldn't say no. We always take donations at kpfa.org. I appreciate it if you mentioned Corona Calls when you make your pledge. My name is Brian Edwards-Tiegert. I hope you have a great week. Stay well. We'll talk to you next time.